0: W. Thomas Smith, a.k.a. Tommy, is a graduate of St. Louis College of Pharmacy, my alma mater. He began his career as the operations director of Quorum Health Services, a long-term care facility in St. Louis. After a life-altering battle with meningiococcemia and bacterial meningitis, he enrolled in law school at St. Louis University in 2002 and graduated in 2005 with a Juris Doctorate degree and a certificate. Certificate in Health Law. He then went to work at St. Louis College of Pharmacy from 2005 to 2008, before he became the director of the online master's program in pharmaceutical outcomes at the University of Florida from 2008 to 2015. In 2015, Tommy joined Manchester University's pharmacy program as the assistant dean for assessment and accreditation, and in 2017, was appointed dean. Tommy is active in several professional organizations and has served as chair of AACP's Health Disparities and Cultural Competence Special Interest Group and completed their academic leadership fellows program. He has also been very involved with the health law section of the American Bar Association and has been appointed to the Food and Drug Administration's Non-Prescription Drugs Advisory Committee. He is an author, speaker, and leader in areas such as pharmacy law, cultural competency, health disparities, bioethics, and disability law. Tommy is an inspiration. Not many people have gone through what he's gone through, survived, and thrived. I can't wait to share his journey with you. Episode 12 is just around the corner. Hello, friends. Welcome to the second phase podcast. I'm your host, Robin Graham, a personal branding expert and photographer. I am so excited you are here with me today to chat all about personal branding, personal development and life overall in the second phase. What is the second phase? The second phase for me was a change in careers and learning how to navigate a new world and build a business from the ground up when I was terrified to put myself out into the world. For some, the second phase is a significant lifestyle change, a traumatic loss, a move, an illness. It could be any number of things. No matter the definition of your second phase, we are here together to learn about creating a personal brand that stands out and makes an impact and grow as our authentic selves and follow our callings, our passions, our visions, and our values. Now grab your cup of coffee or the dog's leash and let's dive in to a new episode. Hi Tommy.
1: Hi there.
0: Welcome to episode 12 of the Second Phase podcast. I am so happy to have you. It is such an honor that you're here with me today.
1: Oh, I'm excited to be here. Can't wait for our discussion.
0: Oh good. I'm excited for our listeners to learn about your journey. You are such an inspiration and have overcome so much and you are just a true example of just strong personality, will, and just a beautiful human being, but your your journey of survival and now thriving is just, to me, heartwarming. So I can't wait to share you with my listeners.
1: Oh, I, I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: So will you tell us a little bit about you? Maybe, you know, a little bit about your career journey, a little bit about you as a person, and then we'll dive into more um, questions and answers for the interview.
1: Sounds good. Uh, Like you, boy, we all wear so many hats and we're so many different things to so many different people. But I think first and foremost, I... Uh, identify myself as a pharmacist. I'm a fourth generation pharmacist. Um, I'm uh, a, a son, a husband, a a, a brother, an uncle. Um, so all a friend. So all of those things. Um, currently, I am the dean of pharmacy programs at uh, Manchester University in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're a um, a, a relatively new uh, School of Pharmacy. We've uh, been around since uh, 2012, and I've been with the program uh, since 2015. And uh, coming up on my my third year anniversary in my, my role as dean, um, boy, uh, what else would you like to know <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we're going to get into the nitty gritty so. <laughs> i thought so but first will you tell us about your dog because you have don't you have an assist, a dog like a guide dog
1: well you know what i used to oh you don't uh, anymore I a okay Dog, um, boy she and i were paired together uh back in 2002 um it Long story. I have dog allergies and never thought that I would ever own a dog, uh, let alone a service dog. And uh, I was doing a a bunch of oh, um, speaking with different organizations and and things when I lived back in St. Louis um, uh, at the the turn of the the, the millennium and uh, was uh, came across an organization that um, worked with service dogs called. Uh, Champ, C-H-A-M-P, a uh, great organization. Check them out online. Um, and I, it just so happened that they were training their very first standard poodle to be a service dog. And um, and they said, you know, people with dog allergies are uh, can can usually cohabitate <laughs> with poodles. And and so uh, we were paired together, and thus began. Uh, one of my great love affairs in my life with uh, my dog Jazz. And uh, she she served as my service dog for, well, uh, she passed away in, in 2013. And, and for the first few years of her life, she really did serve as, as a service dog for me, picking up things that I would drop and she would do it so delicately. Boy, she, I would drop a piece of paper And she would pick it up just right at the tip of the corner and ever so delicately would pass it over to me without a wrinkle on it. And it was just astounding. And I fell in love with the breed so much that I actually got a second dog, not a service dog, um, uh, while uh, Jazz was still alive. And, And I still have that dog today. Her name's Lulu. And she, um, She saw jazz in action, and jazz would always get a treat after uh, doing something heroic for me, (laughs) like picking up a piece of paper. And so Lulu wanted to get in on the action, of course, and just picked up on it. And so to this day, she still comes running when I drop something. Now, she did not go through two years of training like jazz did, and um, and so um, she will just dive toward that piece of paper or whatever it is and boy it comes back slobbered on and crumly. but you know she, she gets a treat and I make a big deal of it every single time because uh, it's she's just so earnest about her approach um, and so it's it's really very very sweet uh, my I, I I like having two dogs and so I I, I got a dog after jazz passed and uh, Maisie, uh, who is not at all interested in the family business of learning how to pick things up and and bring them, she likes to get a treat alongside Lulu, but she's just not interested in that work. So it's it's really kind of fun.
0: Oh my gosh, that's fabulous. That just made my day I could just envision this. <laughs>
1: They're so we, sweet.
0: Yeah. So we have a golden doodle, but she's three-quarter standard poodle Ooh. and only a quarter golden retriever. And for the same reason, for allergy reasons. But okay, she's when you talk about paper, she eats paper. <laughs> never, <laughs> yeah. never would have been good for yeah. you.
1: <laughs> Isn't that something? It's yeah. amazing. The, the training. Um was just so extensive she actually was trained in a women's prison in missouri um which is really fascinating and and you know so i missed her as a puppy and the the uh inmate who worked with jazz uh during her formative years she actually created a photo album and uh, of her journey and so it was really neat to see but the the training is really extensive and it's incredibly expensive actually to, to train these dogs. And uh, as I grew more and more independent, uh, Jazz really became more of a companion to me. And, and so I get asked a lot about, well, why don't you have another service dog? Well, I, I, at this stage in my life, I don't need one. Now I could certainly anticipate uh, as I get a little on in years uh, needing uh, those services and support, but, but not right now. Uh, the, the people who need them need to be able to have them.
0: Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh,
1: I I've seen the value that they can bring. Yeah. so you've got to, I guess, pay it, pay it along.
0: Yeah. Well, that's so kind of you. Okay. So people may be wondering, well, why does he have a service dog? So you, you've mentioned to me that your second phase kind of found you it did. and in your bio in when I read your bio early on in the episode, I mentioned that you were a pharmacist and then you went to law school, but you didn't do this sequentially. There was a gap of, of time in there. And I would love for you to tell the listeners what you went through to have that pull towards going to law school, because it wasn't something that you had on your radar until you went through what you went through.
1: It's really true. Uh, I was in my um, uh, well, my my first uh, my my first phase, if you will, uh, practicing as as a pharmacist. I was the operations director for a uh, a long term care pharmacy in in St. Louis, um, and, and was in that role for uh, five years or so. And and really thought that uh, that was that was going to be my life that I was going to be a, a, a practicing pharmacist and um, do all of the things that uh, I was doing uh, as as a, a, a young man and uh, I, you know that, that old phrase uh, man plans and God laughs right that yeah. <laughs> I, I I'd, I'd mapped out my whole life thinking okay well. Uh, I'll get promoted into this role after a certain period of time. And then, you know, I could maybe buy a, a bigger house or whatever, it, whatever it might be. All of those things that we, we tend to do. And, um, and life just really had different plans for me. Um, the, the long and the short of it is, um, uh, believe it or not, on New Year's Eve of 1999, I was out Celebrating the coming of the the new millennium, and it was just really an ordinary day. I didn't feel great, but good enough to go run six miles and uh, uh, do uh, get ready for uh, New Year's Eve celebrations and those kinds of things. And uh, I, as I was. Uh, at a friend's at a party that evening, I started just really feeling progressively worse and worse as the, the night went on. And uh, boy, it couldn't have been any later than about nine o'clock or so. I decided to call it a day and and thought that I was coming down with a, a bad case of the flu, um, given that it was winter and, and things that didn't seem to be a stretch. And so I went home and uh, and, and Really, just uh, in- increased aches and pains and things uh, throughout the night. Didn't sleep very well. Um, slept off and on throughout the uh, New Year's Day. And about midday, I noticed that I had developed these purple splotches that were all over my 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 body. Uh, and and my legs were in so much pain, pain I've not really ever had not experienced before. And I thought uh, this is like what I remember reading about in pharmacy school, like septic shock sounding like here. And I called my physician and described the symptoms and he said, get to the emergency room uh, immediately and I'll meet you there. And so I I did, I had my partner uh, at the time, now spouse, uh, drive me. and uh, got to the emergency room. And I remember being quarantined and um, the uh, doctor sharing the suspicion that I had uh, developed a, a very contagious uh, form of, of meningitis. And um, and I remember really just coming in and out of consciousness. Things, uh, things are really fuzzy. Um, as I think back on that experience and uh, I was immediately admitted into the the ICU um, and uh, ultimately I was diagnosed with um, bacterial meningitis uh, and, and subsequent uh, meningococcemia so this bacterial infection in my my blood and um, it, it it really affected every major organ. I went into cardiac arrest and liver failure, uh, had to be intubated as my lungs uh, stopped working, uh, placed on dialysis. Um, and, uh, in the early, uh, hours that really the first uh, two or three days or so, um, they had come in and read last rights a number of times. And I had about a 4% chance of of survival. Um, but it was, it was really catastrophic the effect that it had, uh, on my body. Um, and, um, it, I, I was in a, an ICU at one hospital and about a month later, I was transferred to a second hospital, uh, and placed in the, the burn unit of, of that facility in their ICU. Um, that I had, also developed a secondary skin infection um, that uh, really, uh, for lack of a better description, it just really kind of ate away at my skin, and and the, it, the end result mimicked uh, a third degree burn, and and so it, it, at that time, once I had was out of the woods, if you will, uh, they. Um, knew that they were going to have to perform, uh, a, a battery of, uh, of, of surgical procedures on me, um, involving amputations and, uh, and skin grafting and the like. And so really over the month of February of 2000, uh, I was in and out of surgery more than a dozen times or so and ended up with amputations to part of all four of my uh, extremities. So um, uh, my my left leg uh, was amputated uh, below the knee, the, the, the right above. Um, my left arm was amputated right at the wrist and the, the right a little bit higher. Um, and then, uh, skin was um, grafted uh, from oh my back and other parts of my body that um, weren't affected by the the, the infection um, and and grafted into uh, areas that that were and so most of my arms and legs needed to be to be grafted um, and then I also had extensive uh, scarring and other damage to my uh, to my face. So um, just, again, really, really catastrophic. Um, and I, I was uh, placed in a medically induced coma. And so I'm sleeping throughout this entire process and um, processing things uh, as I went. And so in my mind, I'm on this really long journey and saw people uh, come in and out uh, in my, in my sleep, people who, part of my, my past and my present and, um, but also processed some of the things that were happening to me as family and uh, medical professioner, professionals were sharing um, all of the various procedures that I was um, undergoing. And so my, my, my mind was processing all of this um in the form of a of a dream really and so when i finally uh, awoke which was sometime in uh about the middle of march so mind you i had been unconscious uh almost exclusively from the 1st of january until about the middle of of march though there were some flashes of lucidity that um, that I recall. Uh, I remember s- seeing my my mom and my grandmother and telling them that everything was going to be okay. And so those uh, those moments. Um, but really, for all intents and purposes, asleep for about ten weeks or so. Um, and then when I woke up, I knew that something had happened something really profound and life altering um, i i wasn't quite clear on the details of course but i knew it was bad and um and it just really felt like um i i i, it, I knew that i well i knew what i needed to do and i i knew that um immediately that I was going to have to work hard and uh and focus on getting out of that bed um whatever it whatever it took so um I had to I started going through physical therapy at the bedside which was excruciatingly uh painful um I had um I couldn't move the whole left side of my, my body. Um, I had um, uh, diminished really in mass. I was all of about 90 pounds at that point. And,
0: wow, um, and you're tall, so that's, yeah, that's yeah, like I nothing. Was,
1: I was right at about six foot, and at that point I was maybe 170 pounds, 165 pounds or so, um, I and, yeah so it was i had was really pretty emaciated you know and uh, had just lost muscle mass and had to regain all of that it and it was just really painful uh, i couldn't bend my elbows at all so i was hooked up to this machine that would would bend my elbows for me uh, to, to work that out And and on top of that they removed nearly all of the skin from my back to graft elsewhere on my body, and so I'm laying on this raw skin, if you will. This um, it it was just excruciating, and uh, but I persisted, and um, so I, I, in order to um, to get out of bed, I needed to be able to to move my extremities and to get off of, get out of the ICU and down to a rehab floor, I had to be able to swallow. And which was uh, at first proved to be pretty challenging. Um, But I I worked hard and really within a a couple of weeks, I was transferred down to uh, a, a rehab unit and began the the long journey of two sessions a day of uh, a, a physical therapy and and occupational therapy so working on strength training and uh, working with folks to get me into a, a wheelchair initially a power a power wheelchair um, being able to get myself from the floor to uh, an elevated mat uh, so that if Something would happen if I would take a fall and and be alone that I could pick myself up. Mm-hmm. So working on all of those things and um, I, and and did that as an inpatient until until uh, early May. I was actually um, uh, discharged on May fifth, uh, Cinco de Mayo, and.
0: <laughs> Uh, did you celebrate? We did celebrate.
1: <laughs> it was kind of fun. There was a, a Mexican restaurant back in St. Louis that you might have gone to back in the day. Um that one. Uh, uh Chewy's.
0: Yes. Oh did my you gosh.
1: Is it town? Yes. Uh, for you non St. Louis folks, it was a bit of an institution for a long time and is no longer there, unfortunately. Yeah. But boy, um So they had a patio and dozens and dozens of family and and friends and folks just were out on the patio and uh, had a little bit of a celebration of of being out of the hospital, which was was a lot of fun. Um, But then began kind of the journey to be reintroduced to society to the real world and and that came with its own set of of complications of course
0: i would imagine so physically you had uh, so many challenges but emotionally like when you know you you go to the grocery store and and children they don't hide their their thoughts their perspective what whatever they're thinking you know and, and neither do adults, really. They stare and they gasp. So, yeah. you know, that you didn't only go through this physical change, but emotionally that had to be so, I guess, well, challenging, of course, but almost traumatizing, I would think, to have people looking at you in a completely different way where inside you're still the same Tommy.
1: Yeah, and that was really hard to wrap my brain around, because you're absolutely right inside uh i was exactly exactly the same person um and and didn't really even see myself and you know in many ways i still don't (laughs) as a person with a disability which might sound a little strange um but you're absolutely right i would go out in public um and I was convinced that every eye was upon me, that every conversation that was being had in the aisles ha- uh, was about me. That um, and it it was um, it was humbling. It was um, it, embarrassing. Um, it it certainly make me sad
0: um you know can i interrupt you for one second i i just want to ask you this question so for for those listening and even as a parent to guide you know children what what do you recommend in that situation when people see someone that clearly something has happened to them right they don't look and this is quote unquote normal because obviously you're still normal but Physically, you have some differences, right? Um, you, what, what should people do in those circumstances when they meet someone that has disabilities? Do you avoid them to save face or do you approach them and say, Hey, what, what happened?
1: Well, it, it's a great question. And, um, and I have, I, I, th- I think I have faced sort of the gamut of experiences and I think, I think that uh, that people are unique in uh, in what they want out of others, but I, since my uh, illness and recovery and going back to school and all of those kinds of things, I have been a bit of a, a student of um, disability law as well as thinking about barriers and communications and. And really, just the culture of disability, Um, and it seems that at least people, what people want is is kindness, Mm -hmm. and um, and for people to not make assumptions, Uh, Mm -hmm. and 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 I I know that that sounds a bit simplistic, um, but what I like is for. I would rather someone ask if I need assistance and me then be able to respond, uh, yes, I do. Thank you for asking or uh, no, I've got this. I appreciate it. And I've uh, and I have been in situations where I have got it all under control, even though it might not look like I do. (laughs) But then I have been in situations where, yeah, I'm really struggling. Um. And uh, having that extra help uh, is, is really beneficial. And so asking. Um, but I also think that, um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I remember being a, a, a kid and, and it, you didn't see a lot of people out in the community 20, 30, 40 years ago with disabilities. No. So society just wasn't as accessible. Mm-mm. as it is now, though we have a long way to go.
0: Well, uh, do you think, I think people hid the people with disabilities too. It, did.
1: it was part of the culture, right? Yeah. So, um, so we didn't, it, so it wasn't, it wasn't commonplace. No. But so when we did, it was, well, don't stare or don't, we just don't engage. Don't. We're
0: shushing you by, you know, like, come we're, on, let's go, let's go, you know, absolutely. hurrying you along so that you, you could avoid the situation or the person or the Absolutely. Situation. And I think
1: for me, that's the worst thing that you can do, especially as a parent, because what I have found um, with kids is kids are incredibly inquisitive. Mm-hmm. And, um, are not looking out of malice. It's curiosity.
0: Yes. And
1: they're not afraid to ask a question. And what I have found in my experience is when a kid asks the question, what happened? Uh, Or you don't have any hands or feet, how come? And I explain that my hands and feet got sick and that the doctors had to take them off in order for me to get better. That's a story that kids can understand mm-hmm. different. But then all of a sudden it's not scary.
0: Yeah, That makes
1: sense to them. Doctors fix people, right? And, right? and so after they have been able to ask the questions that they have, you know, then all of a sudden I'm just Tommy. Or if it's somebody that I... Encountering and won't see again. that I'm all of a sudden not all that interesting anymore, right? And so it it destigmatizes uh, their their view, yeah. and and it makes them much more accepting, and and that's what we want. But by shushing, by don't look by, um, I mean, I've seen parents physically adjust their kids' heads to look away from me. Well, then all of a sudden, I'm something different. I'm something maybe to be feared. I'm I, I'm not to be understood. Uh, and it makes it a bigger deal. Well, it
0: almost takes the humanality out of it, if that's it a word. It
1: absolutely does. It absolutely does. I, I used to go to the YMCA and the times that would work for my swimming schedule were when all the kiddos were there for their swim lessons. And I was Mr. Tommy to a lot of those kids and not at all very interesting. Um, and you know, I talked to grade school classes and years ago when I had my service dog I'd bring her in with me and we'd do lots of tricks and things and <laughs> the dog was interesting. I was not, right?
0: <laughs> you were just an old man.
1: Who's <laughs> this guy? And so um but I was just another guy. I was just another um it not the guy in a wheelchair, not the guy uh without hands or feet. Um, I'm the guy with the cool dog and the cool van. And um and so um, by, by having those discussions and really just leaning into the experience, um, I, I have found that most people that I have encountered, people with disabilities over the last 20 years, um, that's what they want, right? They want to they be, be seen as people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and really even just ordinary people that, hey, I go to work and I, uh, you know, I've got the same bills to pay and I've got the same traffic to, to, to sit in in the morning as everybody else does. It's not all. It's not very interesting. Yeah. I tell people that I, I, I'm really just not very interesting when you when you strip everything away. Uh, like, <laughs> I, I come to a job like you and uh, it's um, we just I just have a different experience and. Uh, And maybe maybe that's the interesting part.
0: Would you like to learn more about personal branding? Maybe you are ready to take your existing brand to the next level. The Brand Insider Mastermind will delve into every aspect of personal branding and help you create or up level your personal brand, help your business soar to new heights. There will be an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to ask questions, an accountability partnership, an opportunity to grow your network and referral source, and much more. We will meet bi-weekly for one and a half hour sessions. During each session, a personal branding theme will be presented and discussed. Each individual will have time to ask questions and report on their specific tasks or action items. Goals and tasks will be set for the next two week period. And the Brand Insider Mastermind will be a place of accountability and connection with no judgment, only kindness and accessibility to personal and business development. The first session will start March 31st and run through June 17th, a total of 12 weeks. Each Mastermind participant will receive a one on one consultation at the end of the 12 week session. This is a value of $300 but will be included in the price of the mastermind for the introductory mastermind session. The themes that we will discuss and that will be taught during the mastermind sessions include the five C's of personal branding, the five W's of personal branding, the five components of a personal brand, how to identify your niche and ideal audience, content creation and differentiation, blogging, email marketing, networking, individual website and social media profile reviews and recommendations from me. Participant-led discussions based on questions and needs. The price for this is only $3.97. It is a one-time super low introductory price. Space is limited to only 12 participants to guarantee one-on-one attention. In addition to everything else mentioned, you will have access to my private Brand Insider Facebook group for ongoing access to the Mastermind for learning, questions, and accountability. I sure hope to see you in the Brand Insider Mastermind in spring of 2020. To access the information, to learn more, or to register, go to my website, www.RobinGrahamPhotography.com forward slash shop. Well, all of these things that we've just talked about, as far as that emotional component, that is part of what has led you to, I guess, quote, unquote, your second phase. That's part of the reason you went to law school was because of all of the challenges with getting healthcare for all of your needs, right? And then also, you know, all of the advocacy work that you're doing for that equality for people with disabilities. So- law school has been or allowed you like well first of all I, I can't even imagine and i'm i'm sure most of the listeners are thinking the same thing wait a minute he went to law school when he had no arms and legs like that's yeah. crazy but <laughs> i mean yes. who does that it is all crazy <laughs> tommy smith does that that's it yeah. but um you know tell us a little bit about that that had to take so much courage but from what i know of you and from what i understand of your story you did that because you were passionate about making a difference for other people.
1: I, I did. I, I went um, not really knowing what I was going to do uh, once it was over, but once I made up my mind that that was the direction um, that I was, I was all in. And, and really, um, there are a few reasons that uh, at the time, that, that really propelled me in that direction. Um, you know as I was going through my recovery, I have I had an amazing um, and still do have an amazing support system. big family, uh, close family uh, who were just selfless in their um, in their love and devotion uh, to me uh, my now husband, Brooke, we're going to celebrate 25 years together later this year, um, was um, at my bedside at the hospital every day for the better part of four-plus months, Um, and good friends who um, took time away from their own families and their own lives to make sure that I had what I needed. And I could live to be 150 and could never repay that. Um, And this, I hope this doesn't come off sounding like sour grapes, but for the first, those those first two years, um, until I I started law school in the fall of 2002, um, that the first, until then, um, I, really didn't have um, any time to myself. Mm. It was filled with uh, full days of therapy. Even after I got out of the hospital for a year and a half, I went to outpatient uh, rehab um, Monday through Friday from eight to five. Like it was my job. It was my job at the time and had people take me to and from and, Uh, Of course, being in the clinic all day and um, needing assistance, especially early on with showers and hygiene and other things, and I needed to do something that was just—it was just me
0: Mm -hmm. and.
1: You know, and I, I, I felt like if I really am going to live, you know, that quote unquote normal life that I had to get out of that bubble. Um, it could have been really easy to stay there and become over, overly reliant uh, to my detriment on others. Um and I, I just felt like I needed to do it. Now, thankfully, I was able to, um, not long before uh, starting school, was able to get a van and went through uh, driving lessons and, um, and was outfitted with a minivan that was really set up just for me to drive. And, um, and that allowed me a lot more freedom at that point, uh, but still, I needed to do something just for me. Also, um, because of my physical limitations, it which were really incredibly frustrating. Because I used to run, and boy, I was at the gym five nights a week and did aerobics classes and all sorts of things. And um, and so, because of those physical limitations. I knew that it was intellectually or cognitively, you know, that's where I would need to focus, and and so I felt like, in order to make myself whole again, as crazy as that sounds, I needed to do something that, not everybody, can do, whatever that would be,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it, it, I needed to to do something challenging, not that. Relearning how to drive and eat and bathe and all of those things weren't challenging enough, but I needed <laughs> I needed something almost validating. As um, uh, as odd as that sounds,
0: well, it's uh, almost like self discovery.
1: It it was, and I also knew that there was something more for me that I was put on this different path, if you will, and t- to do something different to maybe do something more, uh, than what I was doing before. And, and as you mentioned, during that time of recovery, I, uh, had struggles with, uh, my insurance company and mind you, I had the Cadillac package of uh, insurance and still faced challenges. Um, it, it, I, the, I caught the my case manager really trying to pull the wool over my eyes and thankfully having uh, spent years in in pharmacy, uh, I knew that what they were telling me was not was not accurate mm-hmm. and and also saw that while I was getting state of the art equipment or uh, extended visits or whatever it might be, others who were, um, going through therapy alongside me for their various challenges, saw so many of them um, not get the care that they needed, the care that they deserved, and saw that it, in many ways, set them back, held them I think,
0: back. Do you think a lot of people don't know that they can be their own advocate?
1: They do not. And, and if
0: you have yeah. someone... And I would say to everyone listening, you know, if you're not a medical professional, if you have someone that you're related to or a close friend, tap into that resource. Absolutely. Because you, you know, I remember when my father was, was sick and, and dying, it was, you know, the inch battling the insurance, you know, a PET scan was absolutely needed. Where else was the cancer? The only way to right. know was a PET scan. Well, it's not covered. Well, because I had been in the managed care sector when I was working as a pharmacist, I, I knew the ins and the outs to make sure that we could get what we needed. So don't ever hesitate, right, Tommy, to to be your own advocate. Fight for yourself because you're the only one that has the voice to do so.
1: I agree. And and I was really fortunate also that I had a, a physical therapist who was an absolute Bulldog. She was a fierce advocate for me, uh, just formidable in the way that she challenged uh, them. And so, um, so your own healthcare provider uh, can step in and be that advocate that you need as well. Um, and and in my experience, found that so many of them are. Um, I, I think I'd like to think, um, and it certainly has been my experience that most people in healthcare were, were called, uh, to serve in that way. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and are fierce advocates for their patients. And so, yeah, if you feel like you are getting the runaround or you feel that you, um, uh, are, are, are being, uh, not getting the, the services and supports that, uh, you think that you should have, uh, tap into those resources. Um, it's, I, I think it's a great, uh, a great message to, to folks.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, well, I, I have to tell you, I mean, I just think your whole journey has been remarkable and you you've told me that your students and faculty describe you as institution and mission centered, entrepreneurial flexible fair empathetic and motivational and i think that our entire conversation today as well as many others that we've had over the years that i've known you demonstrates every one of those characteristics
1: oh you're very kind you know it's um it's i I just feel like. I was given a second chance that I'm in this second phase for a reason and, and part of that I, I feel is for me to give of myself in, in whatever way that I, I can. Um, I get a lot of joy out of helping people fulfill their life's goals uh, working with students uh, to, to, to have a, a small part in that, that their journey to, to becoming pharmacists uh, to uh, mentor young faculty members who go on to great, great careers. Uh, those things are, they just fill my bucket. They're, they're really, it's really exciting to do. Um, it, it, and so I, I feel incredibly lucky and before as a pharmacist I, I felt privileged and i absolutely believe that i did a lot of good and 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 made a difference in the the lives of the people that i worked with as well as uh as patients that i served um i i feel like in in the role i'm in now i i just feel it's it's much more exponential that over the course of a career, you could work with hundreds or even thousands of students, and hopefully, each of them takes something away from our experience together that maybe makes them a more empathetic practitioner or um, a better mentor to their staff or whatever it might be. Um, it, it, it's it's a privilege to to be a part of that really.
0: In a way, it's the whole concept of paying it forward. If you think about it, you're you're giving these individuals, students and faculty members, a piece of you that they are gonna learn from and is probably gonna make them a better person than from where they started before they met you because I- of all of the experiences you've had and the things that you can share with them and teach them. And then they're gonna go on and teach how many other people those things? And it's just that web of kindness is just going to continue in, into infinity.
1: It's really cool. It, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I also, um, I think sometimes, it, well, you went through pharmacy school and you know how challenging it is and um, without uh external complications right yeah um and so i think when uh, because of my interactions with students for example i have had a number of of them throughout uh, my career and over the years um tell me that when they think that boy their challenges are really insurmountable that they've got multiple assignments due or uh this exam or uh they've got to work because they're putting themselves through school or whatever it is and 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 all of those things that just compound that experience that uh, i have had students just say i then i think about the, the things that uh that dr smith has gone through and um and uh it it makes it seem more manageable uh that it's not impossible if i just focus and and i think it, to me i i i love that because just by being here and i think that's the advantage of in living in a diverse world that just by showing up and being that guy in a wheelchair Being that guy with no hands and feet, right? That still Mm -hmm. shows up every day, whether it's snowing or uh, whatever it might be, that there are just, just by showing up and being who I am without even having a conversation or being in the classroom or whatever it is, there's value in that.
0: Yeah. You change perspective every day.
1: Yeah. 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 The impossible is possible. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it, it, that's a real privilege for me uh, to be able to do that. Um, and so I, you know, I think that the more interactions that we have with people whose life experiences are different than ours, um, I think there's a lot of value in that um it enriches our lives in so many different ways
0: you know tom i usually ask what is one piece of advice you would give someone
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. but
0: you have you have done it like just your simple phrase right there believe the impossible is possible that yeah. in and of itself if anyone is doubting whether or not they are capable of something Yes, you are, right?
1: It's um, And a lot of times those things that are so valuable to us, whether it's you know, stopping smoking or um, embarking on a new career or um, whatever that, that thing is that, uh, that you think is sort of outside of your grasp, um, it if you if you want something badly enough, um most of the time, you can achieve it. Now, it, like most things that are of value in life, uh, it's not easy. Uh, going through my recovery was painful, physically, mentally, financially, and the rest um going to law school as a person in a chair um yeah not easy um i travel a lot from my job not easy <laughs> <But> <laughs> you put um it, it, you take the steps to do what you need to do to make it happen and it doesn't happen overnight there's Blood sweat tears, um, but it it's amazing that when you get that get to the other side, you reach that goal, it's like all that pain just it kind of disappears, um, because the reward is so tremendous, and that it really makes it worth it. Uh, I appreciate life more than I did because I know how fragile it is didn't have that perception before. Um, And, you know, there's some value in that.
0: Oh, immense, immense value in that. Yeah. Okay, so now for a few fun questions. Okay. You're probably exhausted after reliving that whole story. Uh, (laughs) But I assure you, it was inspirational. Like, I I have a feeling this episode is gonna touch so many lives beyond either of our expectations. So I thank you for, for doing that, Tommy, because I, I mean, you know, you and I have had this conversation. I have the utmost respect for you and I adore you. So I just think that your story is remarkable and you as a human are just one of the best people out there. And well, so I can't you. thank you enough. But yeah, this has been fun. For a couple of fun questions. Yeah. Do you have a book recommendation that you would recommend to the listeners?
1: Oh goodness, a book recommendation. Okay, that's a great question. I'm, I, I am um, reading a book right now called Normal People. Uh, it's an easy read um, that uh, is, uh, it, oh, it was a bestseller, and but it's, it's about these young people uh, growing up in, in Ireland and their interactions. It's really, uh, it, it's just a fun read and interesting. And an insight into um, oh I, these Gen Z students that I work with on a daily basis. <laughs> but I also love um, uh, uh, nonfiction as well, and I, I I'm I'm in the process of reading another another book um, uh, by the historian uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin about leadership in turbulent times. So. That's another uh, book I would recommend, and so it's um, it, it it really is a fascinating insight into uh, four of our presidents um, and the the struggles that they had and how they worked through it, and uh, so interesting history lesson, but also um, different um, showcasing different approaches to leadership, which I think is really um, interesting to me, uh, it, especially in my role.
0: Oh yeah. Oh well, I'm. I love to read, and I love nonfiction as well, and anything related to presidents, I find fascinating. So I, I, I'm going to pick up both of those books. But I will put in the show notes the link to those books so that okay, the listeners okay. can easily find them as well. Okay. Yeah. So I know you're a dog lover, so I won't ask the question dog or cat. How about coffee or tea?
1: Oh goodness. Well, I. I I am more of a coffee person, um, boy, it, and it, it it is this it is my vice, Robin. It's an embar- it's 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 embarrassing, but it is <laughs> it's my vice, and it all started back in our pharmacy school days a hundred years ago, uh, when we would work those late into the evening uh, uh, shifts, and and then even uh, it's oftentimes overnight. And, yeah, uh, and being a student and everything during that time, uh, coffee was about the, the only way to get through that. <laughs> and so it is it's been my it has been my vice throughout my career.
0: Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> If we're making confessions, I'll confess. Right,
1: right, right. absolutely. <laughs> All
0: day thing. Our souls
1: are being cleansed <laughs> yes. as we're having this conversation. Yes. yes.
0: Okay, and then one last thing. What is your guilty pleasure? And I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I might be wrong, so I'm going to ask you anyway.
1: Oh, my gosh. I have so many guilty pleasures. Now I'm more curious about what you think my guilty pleasure is.
0: I think it's got to be something to do with the theater.
1: It, you know, it is. I, I'm so glad. It's, it's amazing how after all these years that you, you still know me. Um, I, I, I am a theater nerd. And can I tell a very quick story? Do we have time?
0: Yes. One last story, please. One last story. I,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Throughout my recovery, I was um, uh, urged by multiple people, mostly healthcare professionals, to seek out a focus group. Well, there are not a lot of focus groups where people went through exactly what I went through. So I went to some of those and I did not find them, not, not focus groups, excuse me, support groups, support groups. Um, so I, I just found them to not be supportive and not because of anything they were doing wrong. It's just, I went to a burn support group, for example, and I just couldn't relate. Even yeah. though we looked the same, I couldn't relate. Um, I didn't have that trauma and so I actually um, uh, was uh, met through speaking to different businesses and and such a a theater company called the Disability Project in St. Louis um, comprised of people with and without disabilities who wrote and performed original pieces about the culture of disability. I performed with them for a year. The entire year leading up to going to law school, I was part of the disability project. And it that was my support system. That those were my people. Um, and it was honestly one of the best experiences of my life. Um, and so uh, but you know, thinking about guilty pleasure, I get to New York at least once a year. And jam cram my three or four days there, full of as many uh, shows as I can see. So yes, it's uh, it, it really kind of couples my love of theater with with uh, travel and such. So it's it's yes, you're spot on there.
0: <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I love to be right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with and that... I also say
1: dark chocolate. Yeah, oh,
0: well, I'm right yeah. there with you. And yeah, there's right? nothing better than a piece of chocolate swallow- followed by a chug of coffee, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. There you're talking. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, well, with that, we are going to end this episode, but I'm sure this is probably going to go down as one of my favorites ever. But thank you, everyone, for listening. And Tommy, if people want to reach out to you to either learn more about you or maybe get information on you know, like like for example, the disability project or things like that, where can yeah. they find you to reach out to you? Well,
1: uh, I, uh, you can find me on the Manchester University pharmacy webpage. Uh, it Might be a little more convenient to email me. I'm at wtsmith@manchester.edu. at That's
0: awesome. Tommy, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with me today. It has just meant the world to me.
1: Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's a wrap, friends. Thank you so much for listening today. I am grateful to have you here with me. If you enjoyed this episode and found the information helpful, will you please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating and review? That would mean the world to me. Ratings and reviews are what give life to podcasts and help others find us. And before you go, have we connected on Instagram yet? If not, what are you waiting for? Find me at the Robin Graham. Take a screenshot of this episode and tag me in your stories so that I can find you too. You can also find me on Facebook at Robin Graham Photography and on LinkedIn as Robin Graham. Please spread the word about the Second Phase Podcast. And until next time, remember to smile.